You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Avram Kivilevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. I've returned from Eretz Yisrael. I returned late Wednesday afternoon. It was not an easy decision to come back. I felt on so many levels that I had been placed by Hashkocha with my people. I had witnessed courage, determination, achtus, openness. I saw the transformation of a country that was occurring before my eyes. The tefillos, the bakoshos, the weddings, the bar mitzvahs, the simchas hachayim, the recalculations, the excitement of being on the ground with my people. There were so many models of courage and philanthropy. And perhaps in my way, I could contribute and be part of that. I have two children and they have families and whatever sort of comforting, normaling aspect a grandfather can bring. This is what my wife urged me to do. Even if it meant discovering some alternate ways of staying there, apartments, bed and breakfasts, relying on cousins, it could possibly have been done. Most people of my age in their 60s do have health considerations. Not everybody is Jack LaLanne. And that's a little bit of a indicator of where I'm at in terms of age. Even that seemed to be an obstacle that could be overcome, barring some sort of life-threatening situation. The normal medications that I take could have been provided for me. There were doctors that would be willing to write out prescriptions. And as I said, there were offers of where to stay and where to be. And yet, I'm here, back in Golis. Of course, the whole Jewish world is on alert. This is no local war. The firebombings in Berlin, the woman who was punched in the face in the subway here in New York, all of that testifies to the fact that this is an assault on Jews, and it's not about soil, it's about soul, as Nathan Cardoza-Lopez wrote so wonderfully. Still, I'm out of the ways of, of the rockets, of the suffering, perhaps, of seeing them, not hearing the voices on the radio of the parents and brothers and sisters of those that have been kidnapped and being possibly brutally tortured. You turn on Israeli radio and you're going to hear the cacophony of voices. And although you could probably pick that up here in Chutzlar, it's it might be soon drowned out by the latest sports news. So I ask myself, what was it that pushed me to come home? And I don't want this to be just my story. I perhaps wanted to help others that made the decision that I did who were there and came home. I happened to have been in the shul in my city here in Elizabeth, and I noted there was a fellow who had just been learning in yeshiva whose parents insisted he come home. And that's understandable because children want their parents not to fret over them. And I can imagine being a parent worrying about a child, especially where the saber rattling is so intense and terrible with a ground war inevitable. And maybe my reflections here could give, if not solace, but maybe an understanding. And to all my dear, dear friends in Eretz Yisrael, who I unabashedly say, I have more mentally in common with you than most of my acquaintances here in America. I become in Eretz Yisrael a, a fountain of positivity and of breaking barriers, which I think I inherited from my mom, 
But in Earth's Row, it's, it's on full display. And I, I regret that I'm not going to have that same sort of avenue of conversation and interconnectivity. That's just the way things are in America. And in Earth's Row, despite the pushiness and despite the aggressiveness that you sometimes find, there are hearts that are as wide as the Ulam of the Beis Hamikdash. And there's plenty of room to huddle there for every Jew. So I'm going to try to explain it based on something that was occurring. One of the things that behooves people, especially post 40, 50, 60, behooves them to recognize what they are doing and what their contributions are. It's very romantic to think about yourself and sort of a Jack Kerouac on the roadway. I don't know what I'm becoming. Even if you saw Salander talked about transforming yourself at any age. And I think that spirit should definitely motivate you. But there is a understanding that all of us must reach about what our place is, what our role is, done somberly and intelligently without fantasy. And I realize that I have responsibilities. Responsibilities that, although they are not glorious, but they are part of something that is glorious. They're part of teaching Torah to a group that has been with me for the last 10, 11 years, a group that grew during COVID, a group online that cannot be ever aligned to the type of differential in hours, a group that proudly celebrated Siyumim in Bavli and Yershalmi, that grappled and came to nice new understandings of the fine points of halacha, and that was a shear that although I could stand up and give halacha shiurim to various people in, in Eretz Yisrael, there was my chevra, I'll say it, my talmidim, my people, my, my, my chevra, my chabura. That was something that would be lost. I could replicate perhaps something in Eretz Yisrael, but when you are invested with a chavrusa or a group of learning, you grow with them, you become bonded with them. Torah bonds you in a way that gives you an intimate understanding of each one and they of you. And that Torah becomes personal and special. And that was something that would have had to be shunted to the wayside. The other aspect is the fact that we have our family split in two. We have two boys in Eretz Yisrael, two young, wonderful men who have committed themselves to the country and its ideals. And we have two daughters. The daughters are here on the other side in the United States one raising her wonderful family in suburban Washington, and the other starting her schooling in veterinary school in Long Island. And there's a stability that is essential, even if it means, in a sense, abandoning. Because, yeah, I'm not just a young buck who's just discovering. You have a place. And I think the most consequential, of course, is the connection to my wife. And it's very interesting that, you know, as I called her on my way to the Kaisal. I only was Zoha to go to, I guess, one prime Mokum Kodesh, other than all Eretz Yisrael being a Mokum Kodesh. One prime Mokum Tviu, and that was my trip to the Kaisal. I parked my car in the parking lot of Nesiva Saren, where my former Talmud, but now very, very good friend, and he still considers me his Rebbe in some ways, Ramesha Friedman's Yeshiva, the Nesiva Saren. I had been involved with his grandfather, who the yeshiva is named after, his father and his uncle had been supporters of the learning programs that I had been in the helm of 
in Chicago. I had a wonderful relationship with the Friedman family and, and Moshe over so many years. I actually had to return a, a desk lamp that I sorely needed with my poor eyes. And I parked my car there on Ha'ayin Ches, the street that's named after 78 yeshiva bochrim that were killed. And there's Rebbeim, Ha'ayin Ches, the 78, which is just a very short walk from Shar Shem, Shar Chodosh, and Shar Yafo into the old city. <laughs> Although Moshe thought I should go through Shar Yafo, I took the path into Shar Chodosh, not Shar Shem, which was my old way when I was in yeshiva 40-something years ago. <laughs> that path is very dark and dangerous. But Shar Chodosh, I never really entered the old city that way. And of course, Shar Chodosh, although there was sort of a red Ramzor, it was populated at that point by some Arab and Christian restaurant patrons. A number of small stores opened, most of them boarded up. But most of the faces and the visages around me were Arabs, Muslims, brothers and cousins, perhaps sympathizers with the Palestinian cause and maybe Hamas. But I was determined to get to the Kaisal. Before I started, you know, uh, saying the Shir Shalpagoyim of Yeshua B'Sezer Elyon, I saw a black-clad Yershalmi with a gray-black beard walking towards me, and I came over to him, and I asked him, is it safe? Can I walk? I said, sure. It's no problem. You'll be able to determine the direction. Of course, there was a number of zigzags. I think you come to Santa's Ho-Ho House <laughs> or something like that. I think that's what it was. People who've gone that way know what I'm talking about number of streets of the of the saints and maybe the holy men of Islam. And then you have the long corridor that is downhill and you know you're you're approaching the Kaisal. And here again, the Arab storekeepers, all of their shops full of kipot, yarmulkes as I called it growing up, shofrot, menoiris, candle and oil, chanukiot for our Israeli friends. And walking down that aisle, they were calling out to me, Adon, Adon, come in, or in English, or in Ivriyat, come, telling me how business is terrible and that they need <laughs> some American dollars or shkolim to keep them going. I thought I could maybe explain to them that I think I needed every cent I had because I didn't know where my trip would take me. I didn't know if I would be getting on a plane or how much cash I would need to sort of navigate some foreign environment. I kept on walking, nodding to them. I wasn't scared, actually. Not at all. I was thinking, thinking about this country, thinking about this conflict, thinking about the interwoving of Christian, Jew, and Muslim in this place, this holiest of areas that we have. And I started hearing a yowling. As I turned, I saw a cat that was limping, black on top, white crest, belly, walking queerly on three legs, limping along with me. I wasn't exactly moving at hyperspeed. And this cat was accompanying me down, yowling. And to me, it was the perfect metaphor of a country that had different colors, limping, but was still moving, moving down to the Mokom HaTzioin, the Mokom HaKadosh, the Mokom of the Kaisal. As I was walking on, along with my cat friend, behind me, I heard whispering. And I was worried that perhaps what I was hearing were... Coming closer and closer, maybe there were some the Muslims that I was trying to feel sympathy and understanding to in some ways, but perhaps they were talking about pushing this old Jewish guy away. But then I realized that it was actually just Ivrit that I was hearing, spoken with a little bit of a, perhaps a Arabic tar of tinge. And I turned around and I noticed that it was two young men, 
I mentioned them. Oh, I'm so happy that I can hear that language. The taller of the fellows said, well, here's this boy he's going. He's going to be going tomorrow. He's going up tomorrow to fight. I looked at his sort of the peach fuzz on his chin and his studious eyes. And of course, I said to him how much God should protect him, how much we are connected to him, how much I will be misfouled now with the Kaisal for him as we get there for him to come back, that I share the pain of his parents that aren't going to have him around for a while, but know that he's all of our children. And he thanked me and said, yes, it means a lot what you're saying. And as we made our way finally to the to the Kaisal and through the metal detector, I walked down the steps. And as I got close enough to actually see the stones, I did what I do. I did it last year and this year. I took my hands to my to the shirt that I was wearing and I began to pull at it, to pull at it, to, to rice kriya, but I wasn't able to. My hands were trying. I was trying to somehow give physical expression to what was going on in my heart. Horban, a world that is not Masukan, a world that is still not proper, a people that need to know that they are still in goals. The goals can be extreme, even in Eretz Yisrael. My young soldier friend didn't have anything on him, sharp. That would wait for the next couple of days when he would get his sharp implements. But there was another fellow who just was coming out, washing his hands from the bathroom. And I asked him, do you have something? I don't. Do you have something? You know, mafteach, I said, mafteach. If it's sharp enough. But he handed me an old-fashioned Israeli key. And it was blunt, but it had enough metal in it that I was able to pierce the cotton cloth, and rip. I thought it was meaningful that the key, the mafteach, perhaps to the situation, is recognizing that we have to be kireya on for the shechina not being with us. Kireya on the tsar of the shechina. As I continued, I thought about my wife's words. You know what you have to daven for. You know what it is. You know what the family needs. You know those elements. I made my way down to the Kaisal. I was looking for a Atvilas Mincha. Normally, to me, the most impressive part of the Kaisal is the outside. That's, of course, the, the, the beautiful plaza of the Kaisal. But, of course, there's plenty of space on inside. It's all one extended wall. Of course, it's cooler there. And I zeroed in on a minion for Mincha. It was my grandmother's yard site. My grandmother who had raised me. My grandmother who had been symbol of love, symbol of encouragement, the person that taught me really what unconditional love meant, the person who sat at my bedside and sang lullabies about why Torah is so important, why learning is important, and how remaining a, a frumayid who would blow the ayin horror away from me. I wanted to daven for her, to daven for the omid for her. I figured I could probably catch a minion and asked to be the chazan. But then I thought that I wanted this to be a different type of shmonestre. I didn't want people waiting for me. So another fellow was the chazan in a gruff, almost a guttural tone, but there was something strong and strident about it. After it was filled up the area, I was ending up standing right next to him. I took my time. My wife's words rang in my ears. You know, you know what it is. And it was there at the place I was finally able to to think. Something had been taken away from me. 
I wasn't mourning it, but I realized it was missing. And when I got to Atachoynin Walam Das, I realized that Muhammad Wanushbino, that I had not been able to concentrate. I had not been able to roll up my sleeves and, and just find myself absorbed in learning without any other impediments. Somehow the excitement, the novelty, I had lost my ability perhaps to even concentrate and take on and tackle difficult sugyas. For almost two weeks, after the first week fighting illness and jet lag, and the second week propelled by the incidents to, to discover and to be a encouraging person and to, to gain and to sort of, I am a camera, what I was missing. And I didn't know if I would even be able ever to recover it was that normalcy of just being able to roll up your sleeves and learn and understand and find yourself floating, sinking, searching in the Yama Talmud. Now, the Kaiso, it came to me that this was something that I begged for, besides all the Choylim that, that had asked me to daven for them and the specific issues in my family, I, I realized that I was missing. I was missing myself, the identity that I had tried to forge, the identity of someone who lives, who basically only knows that area of learning, the area of Torah learning, not as a Godel, not as a Goyin, not as a Rosh or but as someone who is part of that. And I know what that takes. That takes Yishavadas, like the Rambam says. It takes a place where there aren't any Mohamais and there aren't necessarily hours of pouring over the news reports and analysis. As Rashlima Zalman Orabach wrote, even when he was there in the 48th war, once a day he gave in to the human condition of finding out. But he wasn't every single minute discovering something new. I didn't know if I could be that Rashlima Zalman type in Eretz Yisrael, especially without my svarim, without my place, being a haskil, to be machadish, to have new horizons of, of learning to understand. If I'd lived in Eretz Yisrael, it'd be one thing. But as a roving reporter, that would not be there. I realized that I had a early trip to the airport if I was going to make my flight to Rome. It was a 6 a.m. flight, and I was warned by the hotel management that, that I should leave 1.30. I pushed it to 2, 10 after. I figured I would dive in Mincha, and then Marif was after Plag, although in some ways that's a bit of it. Uh, there was enough Sephardi Minyonim going on in the Kaisal that I could maybe perhaps find a Marif Minyon, which I did. Although it was the next day of Pimarev, I felt it was still the day of my grandmother's yurtzeit. I wondered if I could maybe perhaps have a, a Marif for the Ovid. Not actually at the wall of the Kaisal, but a little bit removed. The fellow told me that he wanted to daven. But clearly I could say the Kaddish afterwards. And I stood next to him and using the Siddur that was there at the Kaisal, the Sfardi Siddur, I davened Marav together with this group. And I asked the Chazan afterwards, do I, I should give you Nechama before I go? And he said that he's not really an Ovel, but that his good friend had died in the last couple of days. And he had no father. His father and mother had died, predeceased him. And he ended up married. He had no children. And therefore, although he could not really sit Shiva, he felt that he 
would take upon himself the responsibility to daven three tefillos a day for the Omud, as the Ovel for his good friend who had, who had been killed a day or two earlier. I made my way back, back through <laughs> the stores that were already closed as the sun was disappearing back to the hotel and packing and getting ready to, to go to the airport the next day. Of course, it was not the next day. It was in the middle of the night. I never driven on such dark, empty roads in Eretz Yisrael. It was exhilarating in some ways. The greatest lights, other than a passing car once in a while, were the electric signs saying, Nenatzeyach Yachad, or Yachad Nenatzeyach. Together, together, we could be Menatzeyach. And once again, I was thinking, maybe I should turn back. <laughs> maybe I should miss my flight, Yachad Nenatzeyach. I returned the car to a very ghost-like area for car rental returns. And the budget office was open. The fellow behind the counter was nothing like the people I had rented from. I told him there was the car. He he checked it out. And I asked him about the shuttle. He said, here's the shuttle. He's the driver of the shuttle, too. It's not like there was going to be too many people coming. And I tried making some conversation with him. I said, has it been super busy? Has it been? Uh, He said, well, nothing that at this time of night, it's usually not so busy. Later, of course, he says it gets extremely crowded. As we were driving, he was taking me to the LL terminal. I asked him where he was from. And he said, Ramla. (laughs) Yes, I was being shuttled. I was being accompanied on that last leg by one of our cousins from Ramla. I made sure to give him a tip. He was helpful in taking my big suitcase out. Although I was not able to get a boarding pass because it was a United flight that was now being partially honored by El Al, and I was worried that I didn't have the proper ID. The El Al representative knew exactly who I was. As soon as I came and showed the passport, they had all the information. They didn't need more than that. The Israeli efficiency built on the info lining up. I said to them, I don't care about protiut. I don't care about privacy. I'm so happy you know who I am and you realize what my situation is. He said to me that we're going to put you on and you're going to have actually more legroom. Oh, great. If I could get an aisle, that would be even better. I was able to to get on this Rome flight. It was an hour or so of waiting and get back to that a little bit later. But I did get on the Rome flight. And yes, it was ample legroom, but I was in the middle of a husband and wife, Christians, evangelical Christians, who came from Hawaii, who had made the trip. The husband, in fact, was a native Hawaiian with a name unpronounceable for me. I only realized his his girth and size later, but he was a giant of a man. And he needed, of course, the aisle seat in order to, to put his large legs out into the aisle if necessary. And his wife wanted to take in the glory of the window seat and the images outside. Turned out that she um, worked in the biggest national park, and I think maybe perhaps the only national park in Maui. She was in charge of the rangers and education, and she showed me the glorious images and unique flora and fauna that existed near that volcano. 
Her husband was a travel agent, extremely wealthy, and was involved in all sorts of arrangements that he had not suffered because of the internet. And they were able to take time off every year because they had no children, but they could finish each other's sentences. They were from totally different ethnic backgrounds. She was a native Southern Californian, and he was from perhaps the royal lineage of the ancient Hawaiians. But they had come together in perfect alignment, except I was in the middle. And I was able to talk to each of them, each one telling me about how impressed they were with Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, the Jewish people. They visited the Christian sites. They went into Jordan, to Petra. They had gone to Bethlehem. They had gone to places that were dear to their religion. And they told me of the pain that they had. They had seen the holiday. They felt that the, the Western press had been ruthless and negative. They were our our testifiers, our testifiers to the world, to the just cause of the Israeli government, the Israeli fighters, the difference between Hamas and us. There would be no moral equivalence in their mind. And I felt happy that we had ambassadors for the truth. But there was something else that rang in my head. And again, why is it that God placed me between these two, this husband and wife who seem to have made a choice that not to bring children in the world, but to revel in each other, to finish each other's sentences and to share the vistas of, of a paradise together and to be able to take in countries of God's great firmament. Well, that was one leg. And the second leg of my trip from Rome to Newark, I got my aisle seat and I sat next to a couple, clearly a couple, a middle-aged couple, even perhaps beyond middle age, the husband was, although I wasn't going to necessarily begin the, the conversation more than just a perfunctory hello, the wife leaned over to me and told me about how she felt and how meaningful it was and how she feels connected to me as a Jew and what's going on. And she wanted to know about my family. It became obvious, though, that they themselves were also Jewish and they had been in Haifa that terrible Shabbos morning. They had moved on for their planned trip to Italy, and touring, of course, to wonderful sites there. But I found that the man sitting next to me was of a studious bent. Turned out that he was a doctor in a teaching hospital in the New York area. And it turned out that, although I didn't delve, this was either their second or third marriage, but they had found a tranquility. She caressed his head in ways that, of course, Orthodox couples would never do. And during the sometimes interminable time of, of the trip, I saw how he, small though he was, but he was almost childlike as he put his head into his wife's lap and she stroked his head as he was able to catch some Z's after he had been studying his, his medical books. I realized that I was getting messages from God about why you're going home. You're going home because your wife is alone. Your wife is there. And although she courageously pushes you to stay. She never says, come back. She never asks. She says, no, be there. Be for the kids. Be my agent for them. Do both of our jobs. Huddle with them. Take the babies. Read to the kids. Read them stories. Take them out. Joke with them. Without saying it, I knew how so many ways she would have loved to relish, revel in the, the wave of complete love that these grandchildren exhibited the same way I had reveled in my grandmother's love. But it became clearer to me 
And then I remembered something. I remembered that before I had even begun my flight back, as I was waiting, I sat down in a very uncomfortable chair, and most of them are in those waiting areas before you go to your gate and pined. It was only four in the morning. I wanted a decaf coffee. And it was hard to get one. The kiosks that were bedding the area where I was sitting all only had regular coffee. You have to go to Aroma. Well, I went to one shop. No, that's not Aroma. Aroma's next door. They're the only ones who have the decaf coffee. Well, I have to explain something for those who have never been to Aroma. Aroma, I guess, is, is the premier uh, coffee dispensers, along with fresh baked croissants and other sorts of things to go along with your coffee. You first place your order. That's one line. And you're given a ticket. And you're asked for what your name is. Then you advance to the waiting area where people are standing and sitting and waiting for their name to be called. Very different than the Dunkin' Donuts that I'm used to, where within seconds, no more than a minute and a half or two, you're going to get whatever you order, even if it's a bagel with with egg and cream cheese. But here, people were waiting patiently, waiting for their name to be called. I was waiting for my decaf and my butter croissant and waiting for that to come. Various names were being called. Miri, Itan, Eliezer. Sometimes with two names, I guess, to differentiate between people with similar names. And you could tell that everyone was waiting, waiting for the, for the woman to speak into the microphone, that name. And I was thinking about one of the projects that I had to abandon for two weeks, which was my Yershalmi learning. I'd begun it three and a half years ago for the merit of my grandson, Kalev Natan, Caleb Nathan. And one of the last things I had learned in the Yershalmi of Shabbos and the sixth parak was, to me, eye-opening. The Gemara says that Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Shimon ben Lokish, Havi Mishamdin Michmei They were desirous after the death of Rab, who that Rabbi Yochanan had a relationship with, at least through letters, and perhaps he might have seen him once personally in Eretz Yisrael when Rabbi Yochanan was growing up, and Rab was studying by Rabbi Danosi and by his uncle Rabbi But now he wanted to see Shmuel. And the Gemaras and the Bavli speak about how Shmuel needed to assert his power and prove to Rabbi Yochan that he was indeed a proper successor to Rav as the posik for the world. They wanted to see him. They wanted to go see him. They were mischabn, they chemda to see Shmuel. Omran, they said, We're not sure if we should go and leave Eretz Yisrael to go to Bavl to make this trip. We're not sure. Let's wait for a sign. Let's wait for a basko, a heavenly voice. What was that heavenly voice? Ovrun kume sidra. So they passed by a base medrash. And maybe it was a base medrash even of children. And they happened to hear what came out of the window when they heard it. As the Gemara says, they heard shaman kolia detalia. They heard the voice of young children who were studying divrei neviim, hearing the posik in Shmuel Aleph, v'shmuel meis. That Shmuel has died, the Yispadule Kol Yisrael. And everyone had been masped him already. They were going to be masped him. So they said, hmm, that's the Pasuk that we heard. The Simon, it must be true. That's, and they decided not to make that trip. They came, obviously, and they were right. The then speaks about two Yershalmi stalwarts almost on every page of the Yershalmi, Rabbi Yonah, Rabbi Yosa. They wanted to go visit Rav Acha. And I guess it was a trip that would be demanding of them because Rav Acha was sick. 
What was the basko? They happened to walk and hear two women speaking. One speaking to her friend and said, Has the light been extinguished? Perhaps they were looking for something. And the answer probably should have been no, yes, no. But the friend sort of did a play on words. And she said, It hasn't gone out. And the nair of Israel, the light of the Jewish people, doesn't go out. It was an unusual statement to make. You should just say, is the light on? No, it's off. But she decided to give it a flourish that to Rabiona and Rabiosa meant God was telling him something. When you hear something unusual, not just everybody make their way to gate 132, but you hear a statement that's sort of weird that God allows you to hear it. The Yerushalmi says that's a basko. It doesn't have to be something with thunder and lightning around it. There are messages that God's always sending you. And the messages were that that light of Israel isn't extinguished, that that Talmud Chochem is still, it got better. His teaching has returned. You don't have to go visit him. Visit him in a different time. He's strong enough to live without you. I say this because there was a Baskal there as we were waiting for our copies at the Aroma counter at Ben-Gurion. The Baskal was this woman saying names. I had given my name as Aram, but I guess I stuttered a little bit. And she stuttered as well because she put her the voice into the mic and said, Avram Am, Avram Im. And then I looked at my ticket. It didn't just say Avram. It had Avram with Ayin Mem. The Baskal was telling me, are you part of this Am? Are you connected to this Am? This Am under siege, under attack, this Am that's vilified. But you're also Avram Im, or Avram with someone else. 41 years. Avramim, Avramam, the Baskal. The seats that I had on the plane, Dashkocha was telling me also, Avramim, with the Talmidim, my Chabura, my rigid and sometimes I cantankerously complain about my two daughters, Avramim, and most of all, my wife, Avramim Dvarasara. And that's why I came back. <laughs> the Baskal had told me. The Baskal was masking. Baskal's knew I had a suffix. I read it, Avram Im. I'm still in the Am. I'm still through them, hopefully with the Am. The stories should only be stories of Simcha. We should only hear good things, positive things, uplifting things. Thanks for listening. If you've been out there, thanks for your support. Be well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please take a moment to share this or any of the many episodes available on our platform with friends in order to help grow our community. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.